And again, Merry Christmas from all of us at Rosie on the House on this Saturday before Christmas in the 9 o'clock hour. Now, we normally do open phones to take your questions about your house, home, castle, or cabin. But uh, we think that you're kind of busy right now. You've got uh, Christmas shopping to do. You've got friends, relatives, family coming in. you got to go pick them up at the airport. you you got to make room for them in the house. you got uh, a lot of stuff to cook in the kitchen. Maybe you got some baking to do, but you're getting the Christmas stuff done. So we thought we would uh, take this hour and look at some of the people that visited Rosie on the House. But we do have some tips for your house, home, castle, or cabin coming up in about 30 minutes in our third segment. Romy's going to talk with Rosie Certified Partner, Rius Home Performance Solutions. And they're going to be talking about home heating issues and solutions for them, whether uh, you heat your home with a heat pump, uh, electric, or gas. There's some really good information so you can stay comfortable when it's just a tad bit chilly outside. So we were so thrilled to have an Olympic gold medalist stop by Rosie on the house. And I was thrilled because I remember watching her do it live, swim the 200-meter butterfly, break an American record, and get the gold medal away from the world champion swimmer from Australia in the, again, the 2000 Sydney Games. And, of course, she's the local hometown girl, done really good for herself. And I'm talking about Misty Hyman. Now, the thing that Misty did, along with her coach, was innovate a special swim kick that got her that gold medal. And we were so excited to not only meet her, but she had a chance to talk about how that innovation came about. Misty Hyman suddenly has slipped away. O'Neill trying valiantly. Hyman's in front by about a body length. Susie's got a big job on her hands. Thomas is back third. The Australians looking at silver and bronze. Well, can O'Neill find something? This has been a great swim by the American. Hyman is still in front. O'Neill is second. Thomas is third. Misty Hyman is going to win gold for the American. Misty Hyman cannot believe it. When and who... Because you were known for thinking out of the box. You brought a whole new level of innovation to a stroke that had basically been swum the same way since its inception. For and, and but that you know who invented the butterfly stroke? That, you know that's <laughs> well, a... <laughs> the butterfly came along very late. Believe it or not, there were three strokes for a long time, yeah. and the butterfly actually grew out of breaststroke. And uh, so people were trying to find faster ways to do the breaststroke. And then they started bringing their hands over. And then they, uh, and so finally it morphed into a new stroke. So butterfly is actually the youngest stroke, believe it or not. Well, I bet it is. A masochist invented it. I know that. <laughs> so you invented a new way to do it. Can we talk about that for a little while? We can. I was among a handful of people that were uh, pioneering the way of swimming underwater for butterfly and freestyle. Uh, There were other great backstrokers that had actually kind of started this trend uh, in the backstroke and really taken it to the next level, but a lot of people didn't uh, feel like it could apply to butterfly and freestyle. So, and the most important thing is that it wasn't really me. The brains behind the whole operation was my coach, uh, Bob Gillett. He was really the, my late coach, one of the most important people in my life. He was really the pioneer in in the sport of swimming, using math and science to really look for new ways we could get better. And one of his big themes was, if you want to get better, you have to change something. And so he used math and science to look at swimming uh, very strategically and decide what are we going to change in order to get faster. And so really he was the one that guided me into really exploring the underwater dolphin kick in the butterfly and uh, and 
and use it to get to the world-class level. What about it makes it faster? Is it because all your energy is in the water instead of some of it being wasted in the air? Exactly. So uh, some of it is you're carrying the speed from pushing off the wall longer because that's the fastest moment in any swim is when you dive off the blocks or you push off the wall because you have something to actually push off against. Uh, and so you want to carry that speed as long as possible. And if you're underwater in a streamlined position, you have less resistance than you do on the surface when you're moving your arms. And so that's part of it. Uh, one of the things that uh, that Coach uh, Bob Gillett and I discovered was that I could actually get the same distance doing two kicks underwater as I could doing one stroke on the surface. And one stroke on the surface would take me 1.1 seconds, and two kicks underwater would take me 0.9. And so every time I traded off doing two kicks underwater instead of one stroke on the surface, I was able to save two-tenths of a second. And we found that, of course, very advantageous. And Now, how old are you at this point? I was about 13 when we first oh, started okay. to play with the underwater kick. Uh, I was at the junior national level at the time, and I had some very big goals, and I needed to find some new ways to get faster. And so uh, part of it came along, as some of the best things do, by accident. <laughs> we were um, kind of experimenting with different ways to go faster, and we, we kind of stumbled upon the fact that I was very good underwater in a streamlined position. And then when we started timing it, we realized it was something we should really pursue and take to the next level. And so when we figured out the math of it, it made sense to train to stay underwater longer than was traditionally considered fast. Well, then how do you go from the normal position of the dolphin kick to decide I'm going to do it sideways? Yes. Yeah, so how do you do that? Right. So this happened a few years later, uh, and I remember it very distinctly because uh, – we were at the Arizona Sports Ranch, which uh, it was, of course, the, the pool was in my coach's backyard, <laughs> actually. So he had built this uh, facility where we trained. And in the winter, uh, the small pool, we had a four-lane 25-yard pool that we swam in in the winter, and we had a plastic dome bubble over the top of it, which kind of be foggy in the morning and has a zipper for the entrance, <laughs> and which was great because it's pretty cold in the mornings mm -hmm. in the winter if you have to jump in a pool. So, uh, so we, we called it the bubble. And so I remember uh, it was holiday training in uh, 1995, and coach came in and unzipped the zipper, came in through the, through the fog, and he said, today when you do your underwater kicks, I want you to try them on your side. And he was the type of guy that always had amazing ideas. He, some, some worked and some didn't, and I was used to being his guinea pig. So I said, Okay, I shrugged my shoulders, said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And so I got in, and at this point, I'd been training the underwater kick for several years. And when I first tried my underwater kicks on my side, I actually ended up three lanes over because I didn't know oh, how I to bet. steer on my side. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to look at. <laughs> Once I figured out that I could look out of the corner of my eye at the line on the bottom and I could go straight, it felt faster and then when, when coach timed me, they were all my repeats were a few tenths faster. Misty Hyman. We had swimmers. The kids were swimmers. And, you know, and I knew your coach, but only because we swam against him. You know, I, what, what was, what's his story? Where did, where did he come from? Right. Well, he was from Arizona as well, and he had always had a dream. He coached at uh, many of the local country clubs and the pools in town, and he uh, had always had a dream of starting his own training facility. And so he bought 10 acres in the desert at Union Hills and 38th Street. And I remember when my mom was looking for a year-round program, 
uh, to start me in, she literally opened the phone book, the Yellow Pages, and looked for the closest year-round program to our house. Wow. And it happened to be the Arizona Sports Ranch. And at the time, there was a dirt road uh, to get there. It was a funky place. It, yeah, it was. <laughs> yes, kind of tucked away and in the desert. And uh, and my coach had built his home there. And in his backyard, he had uh, a four-lane, 25-yard pool. Uh, by the time I was nine years old, uh, we had put in, I say we because it was kind of like a family, uh, he had put in a eight-lane, 50-meter pool, an Olympic-sized pool in the yard as well. And then there were uh, beach volleyball courts, tennis courts, and a multi-purpose room. And eventually there were dorms for swim camps in the summertime. Kids wow. from all over the world would come and do week-long swim camps. What a payoff a- for, for him to end up with you in his you know, in, in his sights and be able to work with you. You beat someone who hadn't been beat in this event. They were undefeated for six years, and she was swimming in her home country. She had home court advantage. What were, what was everybody thinking you would do? We, we were thinking like a, we were hoping a bronze, weren't we? Exactly. Everybody said an outside chance for a bronze medal. Of course, just to make the Olympic team is a dream come true. Oh, I oh. mean, I had just missed it in 96 by three one-hundredths of a second. Oh. So so just being on the team and getting to be there was incredible. It was like a fairy tale. I'd wake up every morning, and I'd look around. I'm like, am I really here? Is this really oh, happening? And I'd peek out the window, and I could see the Olympic flame from my bed mm-hmm. in my dorm. And ah. I would get the chills all over again. I think, yes, I this is really happening. <laughs> and have you have you ever talked with the girl you beat? We did have lunch in the village after our race. You did, yes, just, just the two of you, just the two of us. We had uh, we had lunch in the village, and uh, Susie and I had raced uh, quite a few times prior to that, and so we knew each other. And she was always gracious in in victory, and was gracious in defeat. You're not living in that two o five eight eight. No, it's still a big part of my life. Oh, I bet. And, and I think that's the hard part with something like that is that, you know, for a little, you know, at first the 15 minutes were great. They were very overwhelming at the beginning. And then I was over it and I didn't want to talk about it anymore. But every day, every, somebody would ask about those two minutes and five seconds. Yeah. So there was about several years where I didn't go one day without talking about it. And, uh, you know, what's nice is I feel like at, at this point in my life, I'm, um, Yeah, I think there was a time when I thought I need to step away from that. And I went and did some traveling and had some other experiences where I got away from it and kind of felt like I closed that chapter. And what has been wonderful is to know that I could go off and do these other things that had nothing to do with swimming and then come back and integrate who I was with who I am now and have those. I can still be the person who won the gold medal, but I can also be all the things that I am now a mom, a professional, a business owner, uh, a coach. And, uh, you know, but that's not an easy transition to make for anybody. No, it's not. So you do a lot of motivational speaking, and you called it a platform of? A, the privilege of the platform. Privilege of the platform. So using all those things that you learned to encourage the next generation and and beyond, right? Yes, yes. That was uh, something my speaking coach, Naomi Rohde, uh, taught me was that uh, because, you know, who, who do I think I am to stand up there behind a podium and, and talk about my life? And she taught me that it's a privilege to have, to have a platform that I do from winning the gold medal and to be able to share it in a way that has a positive effect on others. Misty Hyman, swimming innovator, swimming gold medalist. That's awesome. Thank you. You can reach Misty at mistyhyman.com.
Well, I, I wouldn't say it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's been looking like it for most of the month, but uh, it is getting close to Christmas on Tuesday. And you're listening to Rosie on the House. Nine o'clock hour, we normally do open phones, but we're looking back at some of the folks who visited Rosie on the House. However, we do have a, a bit of a, a, we call it home improvement coming up in the next segment. Romy will talk with Rhea's Home Performance Solutions about your heating system in your home. We have some great tips because uh, we're officially in winter, and for all of our listeners in the high country, well, they get the real thing, but uh, down in the low desert, it can get nippy, so you want to make sure your heating system is working correctly. So if you've traveled up I-17 between Sunset Point and Badger Springs exit, you've seen a decorated Christmas tree that's been mysteriously decorated for a long, long time. No one knows who it is and who does it. But Arizona's official balladeer, Dolan Ellis, took it upon himself to give it a name, wrote a book, and a song. This is a book called Arizona's Scrubby. Tell us what that is about. Well, there's this little... uh... It's not about me, is it? It's uh, it's about this little cedar tree that grows between the north and southbound lanes of I-17 that I know that hundreds of thousands of people have seen. And uh, somebody has been decorating it, uh, to my knowledge at least, for over 30 years. Some people say longer. And nobody really knows who does it. It's just really a wonderful spirit of Christmas that uh, somebody gives us each year. And uh, I just thought it needed to have a song written about it and, uh, and a little book put together. And uh, so I, I cannot uh, believe so I did somebody it. didn't do that before. You know, every year we drive by that on our <sighs> way to the Prescott Christmas weekend, and we're like, you know, the stuff's looking a little worn. I figure it's either a great family secret, you know, or it's. Yeah, nobody knows yeah. who does it. Yeah. yeah, it's they've kept it a secret all this year and I, all these years. And I, I quite frankly, I hope it stays that way. Well, in the spirit of being balladeer, this is a, a precious little book, and it's a great holiday idea for uh, anybody who's looking for Arizona treasure to, to give. And um, it comes with a little CD with your song. Yep. Beautiful photography. Did you tell me you did the photography in the yeah. book? Yeah. yeah. So you, you're multi-talented, mister. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this. It's great. It's got a great picture of um, the tree, full center. It's a nice size little book. And uh, just all the decorations on there. We got big old candy canes and flags and a big star and snowflakes. And do you think there have ever been accidents going by that tree? <laughs> well, you know, that tree, that tree has survived a couple of fires, you know, that's been right up in the area. I've always been afraid for it uh, uh, because uh, it's burned all around that uh, area up there. But thank, thank goodness the tree has been spared. Will you do something for us? Will you sing the song straight? Sure, I'd be happy to. All right, sure. Okay. Out in Arizona, there's a story to be told. A scrubby, the little cedar tree that grows beside the road. I-17 to Flagstaff from the desert down below. And a random act of kindness by some secret caring souls. Each Christmas someone sneaks out there in the middle of the night and decorates old Scrubby with Christmas balls so bright. It brings a smile to every face that passes by that sight. Yeah, Scrubby becomes a rock star and for him this song I write. Scrubby is a cedar tree, no one knew his name Till someone decorated him and gave him pride and fame 
Now the magic of this mystery tree brings hope within our souls That during these times of turmoil a bell of goodness tolls It tells a tale of Christmas that's heard across the land It's an inspiration to us all to love our fellow man Scrubby is a cedar tree, no one knew his name Till someone decorated him and gave him pride and fame Now the mystery of Scrubby Tree has lived for thirty years We peel an eye as we drive by when Christmas time draws near Like children play of Santa's sleigh and the sound of eight reindeer each year we wait and anticipate for Scrubby to appear. Scrubby is a cedar tree, no one knew his name, till someone decorated him and gave him pride and fame. Now hopefully the mystery of Scrubby will never be solved. Let's let it be the identity of whomever is involved. Cause it tells the tale of Christmas It shows the joy of giving In a pure and selfless way Like the baby Jesus gave to us On that first Christmas day That was great. Wow. That was great. That's cool. It's, but if people wanted to find your book, Dolan, it's just right there on your DolanEllis.com. Yeah, it's right on, on your, my website. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's the only place really you can buy it. Uh, they're either there or at my shows, one of the two. Well, it keeps it very local. We like we are big proponents of buying local. So this is, you can't get any more local than Dolan Ellis. And inside that book, I saw a CD. Will I get a copy of that song? Is that is mm-hmm. that that's what's on yeah. the disc? Yeah. Wonderful. I got so, signed one. Who named it Scrubby? I did. Oh, you did. Okay. Oh, you even <laughs> named it. Yeah. Ah. Well, we have more to talk about. I, with Dolan. I felt that it deserved a name. You know, it does. It's genius. always been called uh, the I seventeen Mystery Tree, and so I call it Scrubby the I seventeen Mystery Tree. I like Scrubby better. You are tuned in to Rosie on the House, every Arizona homeowner's best friend celebrating 30 years in broadcasting and new to this year. In Rosie on the House, the 932 break, we cover our weekly how-tos. We try and cover a weekly home maintenance item every single week just to help you keep up and be aware with... Uh, the maintenance that goes into your home, the work that goes into your home, so you don't end up with these long honeydews. Today's not really a, a how-to. It's just a be aware of situation. A lot of us have what we call heat pumps that heat our home. They are also the same units that cool our home. And they're different than a lot of other parts of the country because when it gets under 40 degrees ambient air temperature, they don't work that efficiently. And we've brought Jeff Carmichael and vice president of Rius Home Performance Solutions in to talk about it as an air conditioning contractor. Jeff, the last thing we want people to do is think that their air conditioning's not well, the air conditioning unit that's conditioning the air to be hot right now, right. that it's heating, is broken. Somebody that's a commission-based salesperson, that just opens the door right there for them to sell them the sun, moon, and the stars to right. get their whole house warm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we see it all the time. Uh, that, like you mentioned, that forty degree mark. Unfortunately, the all electric units, they're just they can't keep up with much colder than that forty degrees. So, in the event that that does happen, and we are, we're in the thirties, and you start feeling that cool air instead of that warm air coming out. That's nothing to be alarmed. It's just uh, about as far as, you know, your heat's just done and not working. Um, it basically just means that it's too cold outside for it to, to work, and it's not what it's designed um, and engineered to do. So uh, we always let our homeowners know, just don't panic, uh, you know, make it through the night and all that. At the, you know, Bundle extra up, blankets. extra blankets, yeah. Um, and, and then more. once it goes up over 50 degrees, turn your heat back on and, and you'll be nice and toasty. And this is where insulation comes into play because Absolutely. if it was up to temperature as the night went down, it'll retain that warmth better yep. than an uninsulated home. And thankfully for the majority of Arizonas, we live in an area where we don't spend a lot of hours below that 40. Right, yeah. That, you're absolutely right. Insulation is a huge, huge component of that. So having a properly insulated attic is going to uh, retain the warmth that the sun provides during the day and get us into the evening hours. So. And I don't know for the metropolitan areas, we'll have to do the research. Has there ever been a day recorded where Phoenix and Tucson never got to 40 degrees in the winter? Right, yeah. I, I, I don't know that we've ever not. I don't think so. <laughs> so at, at some point during the day, it's going to kick back on and start working. Yeah. But we've had some cold snaps. The last time we got flooded with this was that big freeze pipe winter, we mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thousands of water lines in the attics just burst uh, overnight. Yeah. And that that was a, a cold snap, and it's likely to happen. So if what can I do as a homeowner? Just mm-hmm. bundle up and wait, or is there well, anything else? I mean, there's several things you can do. Um, obviously, layering, uh, you know, getting <laughs> under the... the thick blankets and all that. You can also buy um, space heaters, though. Those are relatively inexpensive. You can find them from tw- you know, $20 to $20 like $100, which I think $100 might be more suited for different parts of the, the country. But a $25, $20 space heater can easily warm up your bedroom or buy three of them, two of them, however many bedrooms you have, and just isolate yourself to that part of the home. Oh, my girls love them for the bathroom. It oh, I bet. Yeah. It can't yep. get warm enough in their form. <laughs> like, geez. And and you know what? <laughs> we finally got some cool weather. You're, you're baking yeah. it out of here. Yeah. Now, I've never tested this, but that winter we did have that cold snap. We had a mm-hmm. farmer in Rainbow Valley call us and say, just take your Christmas lights and string them around your air conditioning unit, <laughs> and that'll keep it from happening. I've I've never tried that. I, I'm, I don't I'm just know. not going to recommend that. So. I, I, I don't even know space heaters. <laughs> space heaters. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, for gas, a lot of people do have mm-hmm. gas, uh, mm-hmm. especially those that are in SRP territories, or if you've got uh, unincorporated areas, you may have a gas tank yeah. somewhere on the property. The furnace kicks on. I smell gas. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's a gas leak. It can just be right. that that smell returning you haven't for a while. But yeah, one, what's those critical burn? for the gas homeowners? Yeah, one. a lot of times we'll go straight to we got a gas problem, there's a gas leak because we smell that musty, smoky, dusty smell. But that's actually dust uh, or, or burn off from those igniters just starting up for the first time. And um, so that's majorly what that problem is. And it, it'll, it'll go away within 20, 15, 20 minutes of that uh, furnace running. Um, but it's just so critical that homeowners all with gas appliances in their home have carbon monoxide detectors. 
Um, they're the the battery ones are just fine. You don't need to go spend a, you know the farm on a hardwired if you want to. That's fine. But the battery ones are you can fifteen twenty dollars at Home Depot. And, and this um, should not be where your fire alarm is. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and then, well, on that note, another uh, key thing to mention is the installation. They should be uh, three feet at the three foot level of your wall. So don't put it on the ceiling or anything of that nature. Um, A fire smoke rises. That's why correct. the alarms are up closer to the ceiling. Yep. Gas is uh, heavier than heavier. air, so it, that's sitting at the bottom. Correct. Three feet. Now, does it have to be a certain distance from your appliance? Let's say I have gas piped to the home, but I had an electric heat pump put in. I don't have a gas furnace. I only use it for the stove. Mm -hmm. Does it need to be a certain distance your from the Your hallway is probably the best place to put it. Okay. So just find that central hallway. And how would I find one? A three foot, is it pretty obvious, standard, or do you guys find them hidden or in wrong locations quite frequently? Um, I don't think we find them really in the long location. Sometimes we'll find them hardwired in the ceiling because that's obviously a lot easier um, if, uh, you know, electricians throw one in or what have you. But uh, it's the, the, that's the problem, though, is we don't see them at all in a home. So for what it is, and like I said, the $15 investment and throwing it three foot on the wall, place the batteries every you know year, just at least check them at least once a year, um, that's, it saves you huge. And there's at least several deaths from carbon dioxide in homes every single year. And, uh, you know, what a preventable uh, major um, accident that could be for $15. So, And if you're in a situation you need a second opinion or you think somebody might be trying to sell you something you don't need yeah. or you need a certified yeah. uh, mechanical contractor, reuse mm -hmm. air conditioning, y'all can find them in the air conditioning category, yeah. energy management category, Rosie on the house, uh, direct number. Uh, 480-969-7500. And if, like you said, if you do have any hesitations on uh, location, where to put it, where to buy them, um, you know, we can obviously do that for you. Or uh, you could just reach out to, to us and uh, ask us a question. And you could even send us some pictures and just say, hey, guys, is this okay? And we'll give you the yes or no. And if you're a diligent homeowner and you had your air conditioning contractor out for your bi-seasonal yeah. inspe inspection and you were home at that time, you should have been educated to all of this. Mm -hmm. They should have let you know. They would have checked the f carbon monoxide tester and yeah. um, gone through, let you know. It's funny how much work we expect our air conditioner to do, but that twice a year maintenance. Yeah. And for me, I just forget. Yeah. You know, that that's what I love about our home's out of calendars. It sends me reminders. Yeah. I just forget. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, there it's, we're sadly the air conditioning guys. We are pretty easy to forget about because <laughs> when, when it is perfect outside right now, you, you know, you don't really put us into much thought, but like you said that, uh, especially if you have an all electric, uh, system on your house, that outdoor unit is running 24 7 365 to both heat and cool your home um so that's just that's a motor it's it's bound to fail so the more times that we can get out to take a look ensure everything's operating correctly we can prevent major failures from happening so it, like i said it's it's easy to put put that one off especially the heating tune-up but again it's just as crucial as uh doing your spring do you guys offer a service that just says hey you know what 
I'm going to put these both on your schedule. Our guys will be there. Don't worry about it. We'll yes. come and take care of it. Or you need to get in the home. Yeah, we need to get in the home. And we, we always guide people to do our uh, preferred home maintenance plan. And that's just your spring, your fall tune-up. We send you the reminders so you can call us to schedule. Um, and if we don't hear from you, we'll give, reach out to you in the event that you know you might just have too much going on or miss the email. Um, so that we're always in, in the loop with inside your house, always in the know of what's going on with your heating and air conditioning system. That's Jeff Carmichael, Rius Air Conditioning and Home Performance. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Y'all been a rosy partner going back to the birth of home energy audits, yeah. uh, where y'all started and have just grown from there and your services that uh, you offer and the, your mission to fulfill, you know, being every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's Christmas time in Arizona, and you've got Rosie on the House on your radio. Hi, I'm Gary D, and we're looking back at folks who dropped by Rosie on the House this past year. There's a bill in Congress right now to turn Route 66 into a National Historic Trail. Route 66, the mother road that cuts right through Arizona, starts in Chicago, ends in Los Angeles. That led me to a gentleman who has been so fascinated by the road, he has spent a good chunk of the last few years documenting Route 66 uh, with pictures and videos, and he's also restoring a landmark trading post right here in Arizona. His name is Roman Rich, and he joined us to talk about the project and about the National Historic Trail designation. We're going to pull into in between chambers uh, in the Petrified Forest National Park. That's where the Painted Desert Trading Post uh, is sitting right now, dormant for the last 50, 60 years and abandoned. It's been sitting out there on a section of old abandoned Route 66 that's just north of Interstate 40, probably about a mile north. And that's what brings me to Holbrook, Arizona, is myself, uh, along with nine other Route 66 enthusiasts, formed a co-op, and we purchased this property out in desert ranch land uh, in Chambers. And there's that old painted desert trading post out there in which we are trying to preserve and do somewhat of a light restoration on it to keep it alive for generations of Route 66 enthusiasts. Take us through the history of the Painted Desert Trading Post. Painted Desert Trading Post was established by a man named Dotch Windsor back in the 1940s, just after World War II. And uh, basically, he set up shop and started business right there on the highway. If you can imagine or try to relate today, it'd be like putting a uh, a store right on the interstate today because that's where all traffic was funneled through. It was just on the eastern doorstep of the Petrified Forest National Park, and he lived there and he operated there selling trinkets, curios, jewelry, uh, blankets, pottery, uh, anything you can think of that uh, the tourists may want. And this guy was ahead of his time. We look at uh... – in the middle of nowhere, there wasn't power run out there. He had to become his own power generator. He had to become his own retailer. He had to be, uh, even one time, an uh, aviator fuel concoction <laughs> chemist. Yeah, that's a cute story, uh, as uh, as his wife would tell uh, in a later interview about uh, an aviator that was waggling his wings 
Joy Nevin, that was his wife, she had trained in World War II to be a pilot, so she understood a lot of the aviators' communication. She managed to stop traffic on Route 66, allow this uh, pilot to land, and they mixed up some formula or concoction of fuel to get him up and going again. And he, there's a video of this on YouTube on my channel, uh, Hooked on Route 66, that shows him taking off from the trading post in an airplane uh, using Route 66 as a launching pad, so to speak. Um, but yeah, he was ahead of his time. Dodge Windsor managed to create electricity from a wind generator. Uh, he also pulled water from a well, and uh, they they had everything there that you find today. They had uh, gasoline and, and food and drinks and uh, all sorts of great stuff that uh, tourists and travelers needed back then as we need today. What's your intent with the restoration? Are you visioning that this trading post reopens one day? Is it in a tourist attraction? What's what's you, know, you mentioned preserving it for the next generation, but what are they going to come see when they stop there when you all are done with your work? So the building has been under a barrage of elements that have really dilapidated it. Uh, cows, cattle have infiltrated it and damaged a lot of the walls. Uh, it's got a cement stucco facade that has gotten some damage that uh, we're looking to try to uh, redo some of that stucco to get that back up to where it was in, in its former glory. We had to raise walls as much as 13 inches. Uh, some of the corners had slumped down off of its foundation. But uh, our, our overall goal is, is not to reopen it because, again, it's in a remote area. There's still no power or electricity or anything out there. But we want to preserve it for people and tourists to come out and observe and look at so they can see what an honest-to-God trading post looked like back during the uh, 40s and 50s up until the early 60s when that section of road was bypassed. So we're putting a fence around it to protect it from the cattle. Um, it's, it's on a free range out there, so we have to fence the cattle out. We've raised up two corners of the building, and we've gotten the plane, uh, the plane of the building restored to some uh, satisfactory level. Uh, but our next phase of work would be uh, we're going to raise the entire building up, reestablish sill plates, and we're up a sister in new joists uh, and do a lot of work, put a new roof on it. Uh, and then finally, we have to install a completely new concrete foundation around the perimeter of the building because it is completely fallen away. It's the one thing uh, Dotch did that uh, probably uh, – shortened the life of that building was the foundation consisted of about an eight by six curb and that's what the whole building sat on and, and the whole building is slumped over you all have put together a great fundraiser to help support these the the effort and the restoration of this and have brought back an old style t-shirt of what the trading post looked like 60 years ago that's correct that's uh, you can find that by uh, searching for painted desert trading post at customink.com. There's a special t-shirt that commemorates what the building looked like. And we'll post that link at Rosie on the House. You know, this isn't the only project on Route 66 y'all are working to restore. This is just the only one that happens to be in Arizona. That's correct. And we are so irrationally passionate about the road that only one of the members of this co-op that we created is an Arizona resident. Everybody else is from out of state. In fact, we've had Donations come in as far as Australia and the Netherlands. Uh, people love this place all around the world. 
Get your kicks on Route 66. Hookedonroute66.com is the website. We're talking with Roman Rich. And what uh, some of the other iconic locations that y'all are trying to preserve? Yeah, right now we've got a couple other projects. There's a bridge in Missouri, an old uh, steel truss bridge with uh, three different styles of trusses for those who are into architecture. Uh, it's an old 1923 bridge. In fact, it predates Route 66 uh, by three years. Another project that we're working on in Missouri is John's Modern Cabins, which was these little cedar log cabins situated right along the side of Route 66, uh, and there is only one left. And of that one remaining, only about three-quarters of the structure is intact. And right now we've got some very crude bracing in place to keep that thing from falling down and uh, later on in 2019, we're going to try to piece back in some of those cedar logs uh, to, to keep that building looking as it did in the period in which it was used, which is 40s to the 60s. Rich, there was one thing, uh, you know, with the preservation and bringing attention to Route 66. There is a very good reason and valid reason you're doing this uh, bill in Congress right now to designate Route 66 as a National Historic Trail. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Sure, yeah. So right now, the National Park Service has a, a big hand in uh, trying to keep Route 66 alive, and they actually delve out grant money towards uh, different businesses and, and other uh, opportunities to preserve sections of Route 66. That, that current program is about 20 years old, and it's set to sunset in 2019. So this bill that's come through the House uh, basically renews that and makes it a permanent fund for Route 66 in which the National Park Service will be a partner of. Uh, so basically what that does is establishes a budget or earmark of, of money uh, that can be given out to different recipients across Route 66, not just Arizona, all eight states. And uh, if you qualify for the grant, it's usually a cost-matching grant. In fact, we are using that program right now for the Painted Desert Trading Post that we talked about earlier. We, we received a cost-matching grant to help restore that building. So, yeah, that's what it is, and that's going to basically uh, keep these business businesses and these business owners moving along and uh, working on these old structures, like these old motels that were just kind of haphazardly pieced together, or these old cafes and restaurants. They need a lot of work and a lot of maintenance, so the National Park Service is there to help um, foster that growth and, and keep Route 66 alive for future travelers and generations, because 80% of our tourists come from abroad. They come from Italy and Spain, China, all over the world to come see Route 66.